Genesis 9, verses 8 through 17. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as come out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Father God, you are great and you are loving and you are merciful. And I thank you for this passage that displays your mercy. And I thank you for the ultimate sign of the staying of your wrath, of Christ, who we've come to worship today in your name. I just pray that you would be with us, be with Kevin as he brings your message, that we would see the richness of life that is to be had with you and in your covenants. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Genesis chapter 6, go ahead and open up your Bibles. Um, sorry that, um, that that took so long. Um, but to, let me give you guys a little bit of a rundown, uh, kind of where we've been. Um, I've always found the story of the flood and of Noah to be a little bit perplexing. Um, and how, how many of you guys are familiar with that story, by the way? M most of the room, probably, right? Okay. So, uh, and, and here's why. First of all, you know, if you grew up in the church, how many of you guys remember the flood story when you were in church as a kid, right? You know, it's like the, the most popular. I mean, even in our children's room, we have a mural painted of the animals coming out of the ark and walking across the room. And it's really interesting to me that, like, churches, including ours, right, f like, move towards that story. I was going to say flood to that story, but I didn't want to make the pun, right? But they, they move towards that story and they gravitate towards it. Because they're like, oh, you know, there's animals, and kids love animals, and it's great. But if you read the flood narrative, it is the story of the genocide of the human race and all living creatures on earth. So could you imagine if, like, we took seriously for a moment, for a moment teaching that the kids, right? We, we sat down, and we're like, okay, today we're going to learn about how all human life was eliminated and the animals and presented it that way, that way to kids. Like, do, how excited do you think children would be about hearing that story? And, and so I, I, I took a few moments earlier in the week. I was like, okay, I'm going to read some different children's Bibles to figure out how they tell this story. Because I want to see what they're focused on. And every single one of them focused on the exciting second half of the story, right, where life was preserved and everyone comes out. You know, like the animals are coming out and everyone's excited and happy. And, and you know, Noah's really excited and his family's great. And, you know, it wasn't like they had just felt the heart pains of, you know, all of their friends, neighbors, and everyone around them being gone now and that most of the race of animals are gone now. No, you know, they focus on the excitement of what's going on. And what's really interesting is that in 2016, right, talking about the truth behind that story is not something that's going to sit well 
with us, especially as Americans. Culturally, we're going to have a problem talking about the full implications of what is going on in Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, 6 through 9. That the, that the reality of what God is doing there is really a tough pill to swallow. And the problem is, is when we open up the Bible, right? I talked about this two weeks ago. The, the Bible is not about you. Okay? When we, when we are reading through the Bible, when we, when we are searching God's word, right? One of the biggest mistakes we can make is walking in there and say, hey, this is all about me. Let, let me find what, what's in here for me, what's going on here. When we go to the Bible, what we're actually going to do is find out who, who is God, what, what has he done, what does he have to say about the world that he has created and who he is, and then who are we in light of who he is. And so one of the things that I think is true is when we are reading the Bible— Right? And we are reading God's word to us. We are going to get all of him. Not just the parts that we like and we are comfortable with. And this is one of the reasons why, for me, when I was a college student, uh, back in 2006, wrestling with, you know, is the God of the Bible the real God? Is he the true God? Can, can he be known? Is, is this really true, or is it just a bunch of made-up stories that a bunch of old dudes had written down thousands of years ago? One of the things that actually pointed me to the reliability of the Bible was, is if you and I were making up a religion, we would not record more than half of what is written in this book. If you and I were trying to create a religion and we wanted everyone to follow it and we wanted people groups from all over the world to come join this organization that we created, we're not going to, six chapters in, write about how that, that God destroyed all human life except for one family. There's nothing, what is attractive about that? What is, hey, everyone come along, you know, so that God can kill us all. There's, no, there's nothing attractive about that for the average human being. And yet, Throughout the scriptures, there's stories over and over again of heartbreak, people doing terrible things to one another, God pouring out his wrath on sin. We see those things over and over again, right? And I think what's fascinating is that the only answer I can come up with for why the Bible is so, re so re reliable in those situations is, one, they actually happen, and two, it gives us a true picture of ourselves and who God really is. When we, when we look at God in 2016, the, here's kind of the picture, right? We, you know, this was popular when I was in, in college, right? People would wear those Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts, you know? And it's like, you know, Jesus is super safe. He's awesome. He's great. He's, he's, he's love. He's mercy. He's grace. He wants to meet you wherever you're at. He's so, he's so loving. And there's just love and everything is like a field full of, you know, uh, daisies, Right, and there's people dancing around, and there's a little deer panting in the in the in the field, and there's a little stream going through, and it's just this beautiful, beautiful picture of what's going on. And all of those things are true of God and His nature, but they are insufficient to fully describe to us who He is, because God is also just, righteous, holy, and King. And if you add those other attributes in there, if there is a response to him that does not fit that properly, God must act. The same way that if your boss, right, gives an instruction to you and you don't follow through, what is your boss going to do? Either discipline you or fire you. 
right? The same way that your parents growing up, or if you are a parent in here, lay down rules for your children and they don't respond. There are consequences to those actions every time, no matter how much you love your children or how much your parents loved you. And in the same way, God looks out over creation and says, I love them, and yet there are consequences for not fulfilling the design for which I created them in the first place. And so my goal today, as we're, as we're plowing through this, will be that we'll, we'll get a, big, a bigger picture of God as we leave the room. A picture that includes everything about God, kind of communicates to us about who He is and why He created us. And we're going to see how the, the story of Noah fits in the, the grand story of redemption throughout the whole Bible. And then we're going to see God's mercy and justice on display, certainly, because it is in the, in the, in, in the story of Noah, which most of us are familiar with, okay? So, the last two weeks we've been looking at the creation, and then we looked at the fall, right? And we talked about how in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God created all things, and they were in harmony and peace. And God looked out over his creation, he's like, hey, this is good, I love this. And then he says... Shalom and peace reigned throughout creation. There was no cancer, there was no death, there was no murder, there was no violence, there was no hate. That everything was in perfect harmony and was working out the way that God wanted it to. That man and woman had reflected God's design for them like a mirror. And God's glory was dis on display in men and women because they loved God, they knew Him, and they reflected that goodness. And then in Genesis chapter 3 we said, okay... Sin entered the world, and everything from then on out affected the human race, and that sin had affected human beings like a disease. That there was great distrust between Adam and Eve. There was great distrust of God between Adam and Eve. That there was a shame and guilt that had entered into the hearts of human beings, and that everything we experience now as humans, we're like, why is everything so jacked up? Why, why is there so much hurt? Why is there pain? Why is there death? Why, why, is, why can't I get along with my family? All these different things. We see those things and we look at them and we're like, why, why is this here? Because sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3. And so we get to Genesis chapter 6 and we see that God's going to start responding to all this. Look at verse, starting in verse 11 with me. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. And the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Right? Sounds beautiful at this point, right? And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. Okay? So, here we have, right, the, the exact difference between what God sees when he overlooks his creation in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and the complete opposite when we get to Genesis chapter 6. Okay? When God looked out over his creation in the beginning, he's like, this is good. This is great. This is, this is how I want it to be. Everything is functioning highly here. I love this. This is, a, this is a good place for all life that I've created. And then he looks out over it in Genesis chapter 6, and he sees destruction, ruin, and violence. That it has completely overtaken everything that is going on in the earth in that moment. That destruction and violence and oppression. Now, 
here's why this is a problem. If God designed the universe to function within the realm of peace and harmony, and that human beings who are made in the image and likeness of God are supposed to be reflecting that, instead of reflecting who God truly is, they're reflecting the exact opposite of that. That we should be able to look at one another and say, hey, you know, God is, God is just, God is righteous, God is good, God is holy, God is loving, God is merciful. And instead, if you survey out and look over the whole of the human race, you often see the exact opposite. And that we look at this and we see this violence, disease, death, destruction, and the one thing that wells up in God's heart is anger towards all of this because this is not how it's supposed to be. He looks over this and is like, hey, why, why would I have made this? No, none of this is functioning properly. None of this, this is why some people that, that have issues with God say, like, why, why would God make the universe like this? Like, this doesn't seem like a great place. If God is really good, why is the earth the way it is? Now, they miss out on what, how, how we got to that point, right? But they come to the same conclusion that God even came to, right? God looks out over this. He's like, everything is jacked up here. Nothing, nothing is going the way that I've designed it to. Nothing is the way that it's supposed to be. And in the midst of all this, there's this one figure, Noah, who in verse 8, God looks at him and says, actually, this guy loves me. He's in community with me. He wants to follow me. He wants to worship me. He wants to make much of me. But everyone else doesn't seem to be that way. And so he goes to Noah and he says, hey, I have determined to make an end to all flesh. That's what he communicates to Noah. Anybody really excited and pumped about hearing that? No, probably not. Not, not super exciting. Sounds an awful lot like those, those guys that like to stand out on Turlington screaming at people. They love that verse. Right? That's the kind of thing they're all about. Right? Most of us see that and we're like, this is really sad. Right? This, is, this is not something I'm excited about reading. Right? But God's saying, look, you know, the earth is filled with violence. It's the exact opposite of the picture and the way that I have created it to be. So I'm going to destroy them with the earth. If you've ever thought about, hey, why is, why is life so jacked up here? Why is everything around me so chaotic? Here's the, here's the answer to that question. It's really simple. You live here. Okay? Because sin reigns in you and reigns in me and reigns in human beings all over this planet, the reason things are so jacked up is because we live here. Right? Because you exist, because your mom, even your sweet grandmother and grandfather, right, because they live here and because they are sinners, right, is why everything is so jacked up the way that it is, right? And so Noah looks out and he, see, he sees God and, you know, Noah's like, whoa, okay, you're going to do what? And God says, yes, I'm going to destroy them with the earth, make an ark. God's going to hit a reset button, you know, kind of like a video game. He's going to walk up and hit reset on everything that is going on. Now, I know some of you guys are probably struggling with this because it doesn't fit into the picture that we often paint of who God, like, you know, if God is loving, why, why would he really do this? Now, let me tell you something, guys. The fact that God does this is actually really good news. I know it doesn't sound like it right now, but this is actually really, really good news. Okay, here's some things that are being communicated in this passage. One, God is holy. 
And what I mean by that is God is different from you and I. He's without sin. And not only is he without sin, but he's, he has a anger and hatred of things like violence and oppression and death. The very things that are running rampant on earth at this time. So the fact that God is holy is a good thing because he looks out over the things that you and I hate and says, I hate them too. As a matter of fact, I hate them more than you do because you commit some of them, I don't. I look out over this and I say, this is a complete train wreck, a complete disaster. I'm not interested in any of this. Now, not only that, not only is God holy, but he's also just. You know, one of the things that I find fascinating is that we have a very skewed view of what justice is as Americans. Okay? Like, follow Twitter for 25 minutes and you'll see the crusaders for every cause on the planet. Right, meeting there, having a meeting of the minds, right, to try to save the world, right, through one hashtag at a time, right? And they say, oh, you know, God, you know, wh whatever is going on here, we, there's something we can do. There needs to be justice. There needs to be something going on here. And, and a lot of us jump on it. As, as one of the reasons I love college students, you guys are super passionate and excited about things. You'll create protests, and you'll be organized, and you'll be really excited about it. But if you're speeding through a school zone on a Monday morning and the cop pulls you over, what do you want? You want mercy. Oh, I didn't realize this was a school zone with the really big flashing yellow light as I flew through it and almost hit that child in crossing guard. You know, please show me mercy, right? And so we clamor for justice all the time, but then when justice is supposed to be brought on us because we've transgressed, what do we want? We want mercy. And so we look at this situation, we're like, hey, you know, you, know, you know, justice is good, justice is good, justice is good, except for when it comes to us. And here's the reality. Justice can't be justice unless it's justice all the time. Why is everyone so angry at that one judge out in California who gave that Stanford kid six months in prison? They're like, that's not an act of justice. He sexually assaulted a female. Right, there's, where's, the, where's the justice in that? And we're angry about that. But put yourself in that kid's shoes, and if you had committed that act, what would you be seeking? Mercy. You'd be seeking for the judge to be merciful and lenient in that situation. And so God right, puts on display, hey, there's no, there's no favorites here. When I look out over creation and I see nothing but anger, violence, and destruction, I'm going to act justly towards it. I hate all of it. I hate the way things are, and I'm going to act accordingly. Now, not only that, but God is patient. God could have eliminated the human race immediately after Adam and even didn't. He's patiently walked through this. And not only this, guys, I don't know if you knew this or not, but the, the ark wasn't built in 24 hours, okay? That, you know, Noah probably had a hammer and, you know, something that could, like, maybe shave off the outside of bark. You know, it wasn't like he was, you know, grabbing the latest power tools from Black & Decker, you know, and sitting outside with a work crew with scaffolding all around building this ark out. This took a long time for him to build. And so God laid out these instructions to Noah and then patiently waited for Noah to finish the boat. He said, patiently waited. And during that time, there would have been plenty of opportunities for the human race to look at that and be like, what's going on here? And respond accordingly to the impending wrath that God had promised. And yet, most of us who know the flood story know none of that happened. 
that there was no response from humans. As you can imagine, if you're a, a neighbor of Noah somewhere in that part of the world, and there's this guy in the middle of the desert building this huge boat, what would you think? This guy needs to go see a psychologist, right? He's clearly a little imbalanced. And, and you, so you go, hey, Noah, why, why are you doing this? Why are you building this boat? Well, we are literally in the middle of the desert. Why would you be doing this? And Noah's like, well, God told me he's going to flood the whole the whole earth, and, and you guys are all going to die unless, you know, we, we respond and do this. And they're like, okay, I'm out. And not a one of them respond to the patience and the impending justice of God. Not one of them. And then they continue, right, to say, hey, look, God, God is, God's justice is coming out. God is patient. God also, and here's another beautiful thing that we see here, God does what he says he's going to do. If God says he's going to do something, he's going to follow through on it. If God says the sun's not going to come up tomorrow, guys, guess what? I don't care what science tells you and I, the sun's not coming up tomorrow. If God says, you know what, I want to change the climate in Florida and it's going to start snowing, I'm going to move. But, right, a few people are excited, they're crazy, okay? Right, I love you Floridians, but you've n you haven't been around snow. It's fun for about 30 seconds, right? And then the reality of having to shovel it and move it and get it out of the way sets in, and it's not that great. It's dirty. And you guys, too, all right, I'm already off on a tangent, but let me finish it, right? Floridians, snow is not that beautiful white field that you think it is. It's black and yellow and nasty within about 15 minutes because our atmosphere is polluted and people walk through it. It's nasty. You have to, like, live in, like, rural Montana to get that snow that looks like that. Other than that, it's just nasty all the time. Okay? But if God says he's going to do something, he's going to follow through on it. Even if it means eliminating the human race. Now that's good news because if God promises something else, we can, be, we can rest assured that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. We can confidently look at that. Somebody's cut that off. We can confidently look at that and say, yes, God is going to do what he's promised he is going to do. Now, Lastly, we're going to also see that God is still merciful. Does he have to tell Noah to build this ark? No. Right, God could have just as simply, right, taken care of Noah and then started all over again. And he's still going to continue through the line of Adam and then subsequently Seth to carry on the human race. And he's going to lovingly and mercifully preserve human life through the line of Noah. And so this is one of those situations where God is both just, good, and merciful. All three wrapped in one, something that we normally struggle with. See, the problem is not that God is angry and acting out of vengeance. The problem is that humanity is wicked and disobedient. And that a just God cannot look at this and not respond. And therefore he is forced to do what he does. And so he, he promises this flood. He says, I'm going to destroy the human race. I'm going to give Noah instructions. And then Noah obeys. And then we get to Genesis chapter 7. Okay? This is the part of the story that all of you guys are familiar with. So I'm going to run through it really quick. Right? We get to Genesis chapter 7. And he says, hey, the flood's coming. And so some of us miss, miss this part. We don't realize this. We think that just one pair of animals was taken onto the boat actually. He took seven pairs of clean animals on the boat with him, okay? He takes those seven pairs, 
Now, we know Noah was about 600 at the time. They enter the boat. God shuts the door, and then it rains for 40 days. And so here they are on this ark for 40 days. People are dying. Life is dying all around them. And then after about 150 days after that, the ark comes to rest on a mountain somewhere. Yet he sees nothing but water. Okay, so, so Noah's still in this boat about 190 days in, looking out over everything, resting on a mountain, right? Still stuck in this boat with these stinking animals and his family, okay? He's sitting there, and then he starts sending out these ravens and these doves to find out if there's any land anywhere. And about 150 days later, he sends that dove out, and the dove doesn't return. It's found, it's found a place to start making a habitat and a new home. So at this point, you know, we're looking at roughly 400 days into what's going on here. And then another 70 days pass after he sends that dove out before the door opens and Noah leaves the ark. So imagine this, 370 days of sitting on the same boat. Now, I've, I think cruises are awesome, okay? And first of all, this wasn't a cruise ship, but I think cruises are great, okay? For like four days, not 370. 370 days later, he's out of the ark, and God opens the door and says, go for it, repopulate the earth, here we go. We're going we're gonna to restart everything that is going on here. And the first thing that Noah does when he gets off the boat, after God giving him the command to be fruitful and multiply, which sounds an awful lot like the command he gave to who? Adam. He says, okay, we're just restarting with you, Noah. Instead of Adam, we're, we're restarting with you. He gives him the command to be fruitful and multiply. And then the first thing Noah does when he steps off the boat, look at this, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So two things to notice there. The first thing Noah does after the elimination of the human race other than his family, what's his response to God? Worship. He's not sitting there questioning whether, you know, he's not having a philosophical discussion with his family. If God did the right thing, I wonder, I wonder if God did the right thing here or not. Kind of maybe, maybe he kind of overreacted a little bit. He gets off the ark, he steps out, and immediately worships God. Immediately. He offers up these animals. He's like, God, you, you didn't have to preserve my family. You didn't have to preserve us. And yet you did. Right? Your mercy is fully on display even in the midst of all the wickedness. And the thing I love about God's response to this is he looks at Noah and he looks at this, this offering and he says, nothing has changed about man. Their, their intentions are still evil and wicked from the outset. No, nothing has changed. Sin is still there. But I'm going to be patient and long-suffering and merciful and will never again cause something like this to happen. 
I will never again strike down every living creature in this way. I will be patient with life. And then Noah is the new Adam. Right? The, the, the reset button has been hit. Life is still preserved. And he says to Noah in Genesis 9 verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The same echo and the same mandate as was given to Adam. It says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the flesh of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Dominions given to Noah the same way that it was given to Adam. Given the same promises, the same design, the same intention of what human beings are supposed to be. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is blood. A lot of people ask me questions about that one. I don't really know other than maybe don't eat rare meat. I don't, you know, I don't really know. Other than blood signifies for God life, guys. Okay? And so what God is communicating here by saying this to Noah is, hey, life is valuable. Let's not forget that, please. Okay? So if you guys enjoy a steak, right, maybe cook it a little bit. Okay? The, or drain the blood first, at least, is, is kind of what God's saying. God's like, hey, look, you can eat, but drain the blood first. Blood represents life. By the way, also, guys, they didn't know what we know about blood. A good way to not spread disease is getting that out of there. Okay? And so he says, hey, hey, don't, right, Partake of that. Blood is a sign of life because life matters. Look at verse 5 and 6. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So God is reminding Noah, human life matters. It's made in my image and likeness, and I still care about it and value it because of that. Even though they've marred their original design and intention for what I created them to be, human life matters. Share that from the outset. Know that from the beginning. That I deeply care about humans because they are made in my image and likeness. And then we get to verse 8, and we see what Derek read for us earlier, right? God's first covenant. The first covenant he makes with human beings, right? And a covenant is, is simply this, a promise, okay? Some people think it's a contract, you know, or like a negotiation or something you might sign. And they can look like that. But the issue with a covenant is that it's only binding, right, to the, to the person that made the covenant. And there's different types of covenants throughout the Bible, okay? But when you look at a covenant like this, right, God looks to Noah and he says, okay, and I'm making my covenant with you, Noah. I'm never going to flood the earth in this way again. And the reason why this isn't a contract is because if it was a contract, Noah would say, okay, no, Noah, I want you to sit down. You can bring your lawyer if you want. Okay, and we're going to sit down at this table, and I'm going to promise to never flood the earth again if 
you do this, if you do a monthly sacrifice at this place at this time, and if you, you know, agree to raise your family in this manner, and if you agree to do all these things, then and only then I promise to uphold my side of the bargain. No. God looks at Noah and says, I will not do this again, and it doesn't matter what you do, I'm not going to do it because I've promised it. In the same way that I promised I was going to bring this flood, and it happened, in the same manner my promise to not do this again will also reign true. I will not destroy the earth again in this way. And I love this too because he makes this covenant with Noah, he makes this covenant with Noah's family, and he makes this covenant with all the living creatures that came out of the ark. I've made this covenant with you. This is the way that it's going to be. And you can promise that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. I will not do it again. But what has God done by doing all of this? If he's just said earlier that sin still reigns, that human beings, the thoughts of their hearts are evil from youth, what has God accomplished? I think quite a bit. Right? God has first and foremost taught us this. I'm holy and you are not. You are different from me. When, you, when, when Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil back in Genesis chapter 3, one of the things that was being communicated there by the serpent, right, to Eve is you will be like God knowing good and evil. That's what, that's what was being communicated there. And God is communicating here, hey, you may be like me, but you aren't me. <laughs> there is a big difference between us. That you may be like me, but you are not me, and you need to remember your place. That you are not God, that the serpent has deceived you, you are not the hero of this story. That actually, if you look, right, at the end of the flood, and this is one of the things that drives me kind of crazy about the way we teach kids about the flood. Who is often the hero of the flood? Noah. Right? Oh, yeah, Noah's great. He built this huge ark. This was awesome. Who told Noah to do all that? God. Who kept the ark from flipping in the middle of the storm? God. Who waited however long it took Noah to build that ark? God. Who subsequently, after the storm had subsided, provided sustenance for them and made sure that they had food and had taken care of them and given proper directions to Noah so that they could survive long enough for the waters to recede. God. Guys, the hero of this story is not Noah. It is God. The hero of this story is not some dude who was fortunately picked by God because he loved him admittedly, but God himself who says, look, I... I'm going to preserve the human race because I love them. Not, not because they've done something for me. Not because there's something special about them. I'm going to do it. And God is the hero of this story. The same way he is in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. God is the hero of the story because he created us. Right? When we get to Genesis chapter 3 and man transgresses, right, God is the hero of that story. He lovingly and patiently sends Adam and Eve out of the garden with clothing. He's the hero. 
We get to the, to the flood, and yes, God is punishing sin, and yet he's still the hero. This is the theme of the Bible, is that it's not about these great men or these great women that we read in the Old Testament. God is still the hero over and over again. And this story teaches us that God is holy, he is angry towards sin, but he is also merciful because he is our God and our King and the hero of all human life. And that is the theme that we will see throughout the entire Bible. So in verse 13, he says, I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And God often does this with covenants, the same way that you and I might need to be reminded of a contract. You know, I, I have a standing contract with my mortgage company that I need to pay them every month. And just to remind me, they send me a sign every month. It's a really, really kind notice with how much money I owe them. Okay? They send that every month, and I have other creditors that do the same thing. They kindly remind me of the contract that we have with one another by sending me a monthly statement showing me how much money I owe them. And God tends to do this with covenants too, but it works a little bit differently. He just says, hey, remember when I promised I wasn't going to do this again? Every time you see a rainbow in the sky now, you will know that this is true. By the way, the fire alarm's being fixed here. I'm sorry that keeps going off, guys. But the way that you need reminded of a contract Right? God reminds them by placing this sign in the sky. Right? K. Matthews in his commentary on Genesis says this, Thus the appearance of a rainbow, while principally a reminder of God's promises, is also a testimony to the presence of the Lord who has revealed himself through both destruction and preservation of all life on his earth. That when Noah and his family looked up and they saw this, they said, Yes, God is angry towards sin and holy, but he's also just and merciful to save us and preserve us. That this is a reminder both of God's wrath towards sin, but also God's love and mercy towards us that is undeserved. And with that rainbow, God ushered in a new beginning to his world. Now, here's the fascinating thing. Right? When God created Adam and Eve, right, life was beautiful. There was peace, shalom, happiness. When he hits the reset button with Noah, it takes about, I think, six verses before everything's all jacked up again. Right? You actually see Noah curse one of his own sons because of what they've done. It doesn't, doesn't take long. It's like, I don't know what was going on on the boat and if they were fighting amongst themselves on the boat, but it doesn't take long after they're off of it to start fighting. Okay, and they, they get off that boat, and things are jacked up again. And yet God's promise from verse 13 reigns true. See, God, God through this flood is trying to communicate something to Noah and every subsequent generation after them, which includes us. John Wolver put it this way. The flood narrative points up God's power and freedom over his creation. The flood reveals God's deadly anger over sin. The flood shows that God's gracious redemption is meaningful in light of judgment and that his grace is not to be taken lightly. Is everybody tracking that? He says, hey, 
We, we talk an awfully lot uh, as the church in 2016 about God's grace and mercy. Guys, grace and mercy are useless if we are not condemned and guilty first. There, there, there is no such thing as being excited about mercy and grace and justice. You want to know why you get so excited if the cop pulls you over and you don't get a ticket? Why are you excited? Because you know you're guilty. If the cop lets you go, he was merciful and gracious towards you. It's not, it's not like the cop had to do that. That's why, it's, that's why it's so exciting. That's why you walk away thinking, man, the cop really hooked me up there. Because I actually did speed through that school zone. I actually was guilty of the crime that I committed. And so being communicated here in this story is the idea that the human race is guilty, and yet God shows mercy. The cause of God's judgment here is stressed. The monstrous acts of sin performed in the habitual courses cannot be taken lightly. In this, the Genesis flood, it's distinct from other pagan accounts like the Babylonian story of Gilgamesh, which says that God brought the flood because humans were too noisy. It's a true story. You can look it up, by the way. That, that there's a flood account for the Babylonians, and they claim that the same flood happened, but it occurred because the gods were angry because humans were too loud. And the God of the Bible says it has nothing to do with noise. They're wicked and violent, and they've completely transgressed from their design. It has nothing to do with how loud they are. So basically, this is, what, this is according to John Wolford, Genesis chapter 6 through 9 answered this question for you and I. What is the end of man? Can man get away with pursuing life immorally and enjoying the pleasures of this world with reckless abandon? Is this life final or preparatory? God's judgment in the flood makes those answers abundantly clear. And if the expense seems so great, if the judgment seems so harsh because the, there is no word of terror of the lost, though Noah must have felt it, the flood shows the extent to which God will go to help bring about the holiness of his people. And also shows that God will ultimately triumph over evil in the end. Only one other event in human history shows that holiness among people is the object for which God will sacrifice everything, and that is the crucifixion of his son. Think about this for a second, guys. If God was not just and holy, imagine a world of anarchy because that's where we would be. No laws, no rules, everyone decides and gets to do what they want. Now I know when you're a teenager that sounds really great. Let me, let me tell you something. It wouldn't be. A world where murder is not treated as murder. A world where violence is not treated as such and is not justfully and swiftly punished. A world where people can get away doing whatever they want and there are no repercussions for their actions. That's what we would be talking about. God lays down the gauntlet here and says this, your 
actions carry weight. And only one other time in the totality of Scripture can I see God lay down a clear design for that, the death of his son. See, Jesus didn't just come to hang out and be a political martyr in ancient Israel. Wasn't, you know, Jesus didn't show up to be the Bernie Sanders of ancient Israel in the first century, right? Where he's, you know, we're going to take this back, you know, from Rome and we're going to give our country back to the people. You know, he didn't show up to cause some sort of strife and be this perfect king for the nation of Israel. Jesus' design for his life and intention from the outset was clear. Right? That God had preordained that Jesus would come to earth for one sole mission. Die for the sins and the crimes of you and I. That's it. That in the way that God judged the wickedness of human beings in the flood, God poured that wrath out instead on Jesus Christ. That when he looks at you and I, there is one thing that God can see. Sin. You, you've, you've transgressed. You're violent. You're wicked. You're the same as those back in Genesis chapter 6. And yet, when Jesus came and went to the cross, and as he hung from the cross, every sin that you have committed, past, present, future, was laid for on his shoulders and paid immediately. And that the mercy of God abounds in the cross of Christ. God hates sin. He seeks to destroy it and punish it. And that's exactly what he did on the cross. The ark is simply an image or a picture of what God had done for us in Christ. That in all that he has done through his death, burial, and resurrection has caused God to look over at you and I and say, you are my child, you are my son, you are my daughter, and in you I am well pleased. And it was done just like with Noah on no act of you and I but his own. And so here in a moment, guys, right, here's what we're going to do. Because I know this is a little depressing. It's like, wow, the human race was destroyed, right? But what beautiful victory you and I can stand here and have today, some three to 4,000 years later, reading this story and seeing God's wrath and saying, God still is just. God still hates violence. God still hates sin. And yet in his mercy, he poured it out on his only son so that I might be forgiven and loved. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have a time to respond. Right? Every Sunday here we take communion. Okay? We're going to turn on the lights, and we're going to offer you an opportunity to respond to God. If you, are, if you are a Christian and a follower of Jesus here this morning, here's what I would ask you would do. You would think upon this. You would think of God's mercy towards you and his love towards you, but you would also think about the cost of your sin and what it ultimately cost, which was the son of his life, the life of his son. That his own son gave up his life so that you and I might be forgiven. And as you take communion, you would take it gratefully and worshipfully. 
that you would walk up there and you would take the bread and you would take the grape juice and you would say, Jesus has poured out his life and his blood for me. Hallelujah, praise be to him. If you're not a Christian here this morning, take this opportunity to respond and reflect why. Right, I've heard it said over the, o- over the course of time, right? You know, how, how can I know that, that God is good? What, what God, God needs to do something for me to, to, to show himself as real. What, what more could he do than give up the life of his only son? What, what could be more powerful than the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Everything else to me seems like a magic trick. But there's nothing that could compare to that power and that love put on display for you. My prayer would be that you would respond and you would know the depth and the magnitude both of God's hatred for sin, but also his love for you and his offering of forgiveness that he extends freely to you in Jesus. And that you would embrace him, not as just some historical figure, but as your God and your King and your Savior. Let's pray. God, the depth and the magnitude of our sin is great. And the chasm between us and you is wide. And yet, Lord, you see fit in your goodness and mercy towards us to redeem us and purchase us as your children. Thank you. God, may we look for hope and peace to Jesus alone. May we look for life and vitality in Jesus alone because he is the author of life. God, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for the mercy you showed Noah and subsequently us because we are only here because of that mercy and the fact that that mercy has been more greatly extended to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus, I love you. Thank you for everyone here. May we continue to worship you because you are worthy. And I ask.